Hello and welcome to the Leaders' Council podcast with me, Joshua Jackson. This podcast, just like the Leaders' Council itself, is all about recognizing and celebrating the people who keep this great country running. We exist to give leaders a voice outside of their own organizations and to support them in the same way that they support their staff every single day of the week. If you're in a leadership position yourself and would like to have your voice heard on the national stage, please go to leaderscouncil.co.uk forward slash apply. Each week on this program, I'm joined by a different leadership figure from the world of, of business, education, politics, sports, or even from local communities in the aim of truly discovering who those people are that get up every morning and make this country work. We get their take on the current economic and political landscape of the UK and discuss everything from uh, rising unemployment to national insurance hikes and, of course, the success and the innovation that makes it all worthwhile in the end. On today's programme, I'm delighted to be joined by Victoria Sturman of Resource. And without further ado, Victoria, welcome onto the show. Thank you, Joshua. Lovely to be here. No, thank you ever so much for, for taking the time out. Um, you know, as a an or, leader of an organisation that's supporting people to get back into work, helping them to, um, you know, adapt to, to some of the challenges over the past 18 months and, um, you know, supporting people to, to have confidence in themselves. Um, I can imagine it's been a really sort of interesting period. Um, you know, how's everything been? Interesting is, is the word, uh, so uh, um, like everyone, I guess, um, at the beginning of COVID, there was a, a period of, of, of panic, um, of, of fear of what does this mean for me, um, as you know, we, we could see the, the predictions um, of unemployment going sky high, and, and therefore uh, the expected, anticipated um, a rush for people needing our services, and, and those we were already helping. Um, felt um, absolute panic because, you know, for many of them, the people we help um, are people who are unemployed looking for a new job. Um, and they were, many, many cases in the middle of the recruitment process, they, they may have been to two or three interviews, um, and then everything sort of got on, help put, put on hold temporarily as hiring managers didn't know if they were able to hire into the position. Um, and so, so yes, so um, a period of... of uh, of fear, uh, of confusion, and, and our role was very much to try and provide a calming voice, um, a, a, a sort of um, supportive, you know, we are here for you, um, we're, we're going to help you um, navigate through these, these new times. Um, so it, it was, it was like for everyone, difficult, um, but we are um, a small, uh, very dedicated staff team who, who very quickly ran around and said that we need to be available um, and not miss a day. Um, and so when people, our service users, our clients felt, felt frightened, we needed to be the, the common voice for them. Um, and, and that's what we did. We, like many people, uh, moved our services that had been previously all face-to-face. So people come to us for help finding um, a, a job and it's very much about helping them find the confidence to apply for roles, helping them how to make the best of their skills um, and to show their experience, but it had all been, um, like many organisations, face-to-face, they came to our offices, sat down with an advisor, sat in a, a face-to-face workshop. So our, our job was to very, very quickly make this available online. We were quite fortunate because we'd actually already used Zoom before. Um, we had um, been using Zoom for the, the previous couple of months, so it was quite easy for us to sort of pick an online platform um, and move our services. But obviously for our service users and for our volunteers, you know, many of them um, had never used it. So it was, you know, about sort of trying to um, teach people to use it and, and give them the confidence that actually they could have support, they could be an advisor uh, and work quite effectively um, online. And, and I think like for many organisations, it also showed us that something that we felt really needed to be face-to-face actually didn't, and we could be very effective um, online as well. And so that's what we've done for the last 18 months, is helped people um, via one-to-one support online, and then all of our workshops and seminars 
um, similarly, we've adapted them. We've had to rewrite them and reorganize them to make them as good as possible uh, virtually, but they have all um, taken place online as well. Um, and in the workshops where we used to be face-to-face and use lots of role play and get our clients up and about and, and acting out scenarios, we've had volunteers agree to, to let us uh, record them. So we've created videos of, of good examples of, of role play. Um, and um, and, it, and it's worked very well. It's as, as good as it could be, I think. Um, you know, obviously, whilst most of the time while we're doing these, I'm speaking to business leaders and their main focus was to protect the business, um, to make sure that the business could survive for the vast sort of majority of staff. And obviously then furlough came along, which was, you know, a great benefit. And a lot of people have had to rely on that and government support over the last over the last 18 months. But for yourself, um, you know, helping other people to to sort of get into work, um, to find new jobs, and people are shutting down, or people were, you know, at the time, really dialing back on on you know to the bare necessities. How did you find that? Were people employing? Were they open to um, you know your service users? being easily be able to find jobs and, and get into employment or has there been like a, a significant period of of relying on on other types of government support there yes I mean, so there there was um i'd say for the first you know at least up until um earlier this year there were a lot of people who, who couldn't find jobs um for example the younger people that we helped those aged 16 to 24 um were, were particularly affected uh, we tend to help a lot of people coming out of university um, and the grad schemes were, were massively um, decreased in size this year. Most big organisations didn't run them, but those that did um, had had a, a tiny proportion of vacancies that they, they usually have. So um, other people um, in roles, for example, people in events roles, um, in the travel industry, there were, there were a lot of instances where people um, couldn't find jobs. And, and I think one of the difficulties is that there has been um, vacancies and, and now there are over a million job vacancies, but it's about matching those people who are out of work with the vacancies. So, for example, there are a lot of vacancies in the care sector, and yet the people coming to us don't always have the, the skills or the, the devotion or the dedication to be a carer. Um, there are you know, roles available in hospitality. Um, but again, um, not everyone wants or has the, the, the skills for those sort of roles. So what I'm seeing at the moment is a real mismatch between the, the supply and the demand. And, you know, today's an, an announcement or this week from the Office of National Statistics around um, unemployment, um, the, the rate has fallen yet again, and the number of vacancies has, has increased. So there's over a million job vacancies um, at the moment. Um, but, but not always in the areas that there um, people are looking for jobs. You know, there are farms desperately trying to recruit fruit pickers, for example, and yet you know people coming to us in central or, or northwest London um, are, are not looking for job picking fruit um, in, in Kent, for example. No, exactly. It does seem that obviously jobs are going up across the board, but in certain areas um, and in certain areas that have been hit quite hard by um, the impact of uh, the business interruption and COVID over the last over the last year. You know, as you say, those those in care and the safety elements that have gone alongside that and, and the, the political arguments that have gone alongside that, especially at the moment, um, as well mm-hmm. as then those in hospitality who actually have found themselves out of work, um, you know, not being able to go in and having to rely on support or, or um, you know, furlough situation, which may not be representative of their actual hours at the time they were working, um, you know, with zero hour contracts still one of the, um, you know, big talking points of the last few years. So you rights um you know it must be very difficult to be able to get people into the style of job that maybe they were you know hoping to get into before they went into education or something that they've just come out of but you know for yourself especially um you know having to stand up during this time having to pivot so quickly and having so many people rely upon you it must have been very difficult for you to be able to put that smile on your face and stand up and be supportive not only of staff um but also others who are 
in stressful situations and this isn't something that was just stressful for an individual it had outside pressures how did you you know yourself um you know sort of deal with this yeah i think that's right it was it was a stressful time uh, and i was very aware of all of the audiences that uh, i am accountable to so not only the trustees of, of our charity and um, our, our paid staff and service users um, but also um, our army of skilled professional volunteers that make up resource, that really make resource what it is. Um, and so um, I, I think like um, any leader, communication was the most important thing, regular um, communication and, and giving out as much information as we possibly can. So for example, with um, when we were all working at home, it was just very important to have um, many check-in points. So with, with paid staff, a sort of a morning and an evening check-in call to see um, how people were doing. Um, and uh, with, with trustees, we, we moved to very, very regular meetings um, in the first few months. Um, but one of the, the, the interesting points that, that, that had, um, I hadn't considered um, early on in the pandemic was our advisors who sort of asked to carry on seeing our, our services as our clients um, day in, day out. They, you know, Some of them were actually saying, well, I'm just now not confident in my skills because I don't know how to advise somebody during a pandemic when um, the jobs market all seemingly has changed overnight. And, um, you know, how can I advise my client who's a photographer, who's um, a wedding photographer, and who's, and the weddings have all um, stopped overnight? Um, what, what should they do? And so very quickly we were, we were um, amassing all of the information we could and doing some analysis and actually trying to give out um, briefings uh, very quickly to advisors to um, help them have as, as much information as they could to be able to advise um, our clients. I, um, I was very fortunate to be supported by um, our, our, our paid staff and also the trustees um, who are, are very close, we're very close and work very closely um, together with me um, to lead the charity. Mm. I think that's um, you know really important there as well. How do you advise somebody and something that nobody knows what the next step is? Um, you know, yeah. you look at government messaging over this time period, and it has been confused at points. There's been many pivots, many U-turns, many changes in in direction, and you know that's from the top level. And and as that sort of comes down, and and you are having to you know brief your staff, and there is that that lack of confidence. I'm glad that you were able to recognise that and and to stand up and provide those briefings, provide that support. But yourself, did you, um, you know, a lot of people that I speak to, they they had support groups amongst their, um, you know, other managing directors or, or CEOs, people that could understand the pressures and they could turn to and speak quite frankly. Were you able to speak like that with your, um, you know, board of trustees? Was there anybody that, that you turned to, other sort of heads of charities and things to, um, to sort of help during this time? Yes, so I'm very fortunate, and I had both. So I had uh, my trustees who um, I could talk to and did very regularly, and also um, a forum of CEOs of Jewish charities, uh, of which Resource is one. Um, and uh, we got together very regularly um, for discussions and, and really um, sharing ideas um, and sharing practices. Um, and it helped a lot. Um, you know, people often say that a CEO role can be a very, very lonely role. Um, and, you know, you have to always have this sort of big smile and brave face, but actually having um, uh, another sort of around 50 CEOs um, of similar sized organisations to be able to talk to um, was, was immensely helpful because it was so confusing in the early days for everybody, the lack of um, direction, the lack of clarity um, meant that, you know, we, we were all sort of floundering a bit. The also lack of understanding of the furlough scheme, you know, we had the word furlough banded about but you know what, what did that actually mean um how long would the furlough scheme last because initially it was a very short term thing that got has been extended and extended and i believe it really will end at the end of september so we've just got a few more weeks left of the furlough scheme uh you know we i think the most recent estimates are over a million people are still on the on furlough so there's you know even still we have some some uncertainty and some some anxiety here Yes, this is most definitely not over yet. Um, there's going to be a few twists and turns over the next few months. Um, you know, just sort of trying to take those small steps back to normality and maybe the winter period will be tough. But um, it seems like, you know, things are getting back to a, a sense of of 
easier working patterns um you know face to face has reopened people are going back into into jobs and have you gone back into the way that you were working previously or have you sort of maintained the the sort of hybrid level now are you doing things still online having those that remote working or are you you know hoping to get everybody back into the office and uh, and and sort of all sing from the same hymn sheet again so, so we are um, on a journey to getting back into the office. So our paid staff are now mostly working back in the office um, and we're gradually bringing clients in face-to-face. Um, we will retain some hybrid working. Um, we've, you know, there are, have been some, some benefits um, and we've taken some, some um, benefits from the last 18 months in that we can help people now who don't live close to our office. Um, who, who couldn't easily travel into our office in North London um, and or perhaps um, have got accessibility um, difficulties and it would be difficult for them to travel in. So we'll be able to continue helping people online and uh, remotely. But my view is that in the main, we will do, people will do better um, if they come in and have face-to-face support. Um, it, I don't think universally a popular you uh, and it's something that I'm working on at the moment but but what I've observed with the job seekers people you know who are who really need help finding a job and um, the the discipline of, of having to, to get dressed for a meeting and come into to the office and meet with their advisor and um, is really um important um, and those who have got the motivation and come in and, and work with an advisor seem seem to be really thriving and their job search is going well, they're, they're getting job offers and they're starting jobs. Those who were seeing purely uh, online on Zoom or Teams, um, some of them are not doing so well. You know, I, I hear from our advisors that, you know, they're, they're seeing clients who, who don't appear to sort of even be properly dressed for a, a business meeting, who um, haven't always done the research, done the, done the work, the actions that they'd agreed with their advisor. And they get sometimes, in some cases, uh, are really sort of going slowly or stagnating. So um, I, I obviously can't say for sure that the two are, are, are totally linked, but it is my feeling that um, being um, out there, um, coming into a meeting, meeting other people. When people come to a resource, they don't just meet their advisor. They meet um, the front of house team, uh, our administrators. They meet our relationship manager. There's a lot of people here um, to give them ideas about their job search strategy to, to um, make introductions to, for them, but also just to keep them motivated, to keep them upbeat. Um, and so we're trying to persuade um, all of our clients to, to, to come out, get out of the house, perhaps out of their comfort zone, because after all, traveling um, after 18 months is, is, you know, has been a source of anxiety for people if they've got to go on public transport. Um, we're, we, like everybody, you know, have have put in a COVID safe policy and, you know, we've had mask wearing, we've got one way system, you know, we have made it as, as, as safe um, and accessible as we can. Um, but, but so, so really, um, to answer your question, um, we aim to go back to where we were before the pandemic in terms of being um, a, a face-to-face organisation. We're very much a people organisation and, and I think that that is our best face-to-face, but retaining the benefits of being able to support people online where we can't see them face to face yeah the hybrid the hybrid model is definitely here to stay but i I'd just mm. like to you know really back you on that point as well that there is nothing like being in the room with somebody understanding those non-verbal cues how somebody's um you know reacting to something that you're saying and you can you can see the the the, the body language which is always very important not only um you know as you're trying to find a job but also whilst you're in a job working with your team the ideas that you're putting out there and that's one thing that i think everybody has missed they uh, the, the the small chats the the meetings being able to tell who really isn't engaged or who really isn't agreeing with you um, in some respects but um, you know just sort of looking then ahead to the next year how do you think that's going to go do you think that it will be um, you know plain sailing or do you have any new projects new areas that you're going to be working with any sort of uh, you know plans for the future really. Yes, well, I, I think at Resource we're going to be very busy in the coming year. We're going to be um, helping um, the additional uh, people who've been affected by COVID um, and who are coming off furloughs. Um, I think we're going to be, be helping people who are in industries that are just not 
and able to recruit to the levels that they used to, like the travel industry for um, just an example. Um, I mean, in terms of new projects, we're always looking at ways we can help um, unemployed people better and, and what more can we do for job seekers. One of the things that we are um, going to start um, doing is um, expanding our help to help um, people who are in employment um, but in a job that really doesn't suit them or they're, they're, they they are not able to do. So whereas historically resource is very much here purely for unemployed people and we would not been able to help people who have any employment, um, we are recognising that there are some people who are in, in a job that is just making them extremely unhappy or unwell. Um, so this is a, uh, it's been sort of codenamed the unhappily employed Um so, um, and we are taking advantage of the fact that we've learned how to help remotely and we are very good now at, at meetings online. Um, and so saying that, you know, if there, there is somebody who really needs help changing jobs um, but can't afford to leave their job, you know, it would, we would never recommend somebody um, leave their job um, without another job um, to go to if, if, if they can help it. Um, and so rather than saying, you know, you need to leave your job to be able to come to resource, we're looking at ways that we can help people um, in this situation out of working hours, but that they are into a job that is, is better um, suited to them. Because after all, somebody who is unhappy or unwell in their job is, um, this is somebody whose um, distress and anxiety will affect um, the whole family. Um, and, and, you know, it could um, have very long-lasting implications on somebody's either physical or mental health, and that's their family. Yeah, I think that's a, a really important thing to be to be doing as well. Um, you know, as you say, helping those unhappily employed become happily employed is better for their own their own mental health, well being, and um, you know, obviously the the job role that they're performing. Um, you know, which is going to boost the the company around them as well. So I really do hope that those plans um, you know go well, and it'd be great to have you on again in a few months. Um, you know end of q1 once you're uh, you know able to to sort of report back and we can talk about how how everything else is going but victoria it's been an absolute pleasure um having you on and speaking about something that i, I wouldn't normally hear um you know really interesting conversation and uh, and thank you ever so much thank you i've really enjoyed it and i would love to come back um, and, and report back at in a few months time thank you brilliant victoria thank you that was Victoria Sturman, Chief Executive of Resource. And next up on this episode, we have Leaders' Council Chairman, Lord David Blunkett, as he gives his take on the last 18 months and his uh, ideas on the political and economic landscape to come. Lord Blunkett, welcome. Thank you very much. It's very good to be with you. Um, well, of course, uh, nothing is being said uh, at the moment other than COVID-19, uh, which uh, we must touch on. Um, what would your message be to small businesses who are trying to keep going? Well, I think the last ones standing will be the ones that thrive when we get back to some sort of normality. So it's have confidence and courage. Obviously, take advantage as far as you can of the government help. I think that Rishi Sunak, the Chancellor, has gone about as far as you could have expected mm -hmm. in the circumstances. There are obviously small businesses that fall between the cracks. Those who uh, don't have um, defined premises, can't benefit from the business rate waiver, uh, have not really been able to demonstrate that they can uh, adhere to the PAYE for furloughing staff and, of course, whether they can receive the the grant, 10,000 or 25,000, all, all of those who can uh, are obviously able at least to benefit from that for the time being and look to the future. But I think the second thing to say, and they don't need me to tell them this as a politician who, who did once do a business studies qualification, which is that it will be a different world and being able mm. to think about how that world will look in a year's time and be creative about it and learn from not just what's happening to you at this moment in time, but to others around you and the sector that you're working in, that will be really important. Do you feel that the long-term uh, effects of uh, the COVID-19 outbreak 
uh, will in some ways be positive uh, for a British industry? Well, only in the sense that people are having to be creative. They're having to adjust and innovate. Therefore, they're thinking about more productive, if you like, greater productivity ways of delivering the same service or delivering the same products. And in that sense, I think we'll have temporarily at least very much higher unemployment than we've become used to, but we'll probably have a burst of productivity, Mm -hmm. which will help with the recovery, whether it will help with the inequity of the way in which our economy is imbalanced, both between services and productivity and and the production of goods and services, I'm not sure. What we will need to try and do is to ensure that the geographic imbalance that exists is, as far as humanly possible, is dealt with by both uh, the entrepreneurship and innovation from the bottom up and targeted government help, which will still be needed. And we are now in the throes of the kind of borrowing that we saw back in 2008 to save the banking and economic system. We're we're having to do that to save the whole of our productive business and Mm -hmm. commerce. And I think that will have to be sustained for some time. Do you feel that people will take a second look at global supply chains in the wake of this outbreak? I think there's going to be much more creative ways of using local supply and linking up inside sectors much more effectively. And I hope that the Leaders' Council will be able to play a part in that in the sense that people who Mm. have something in common, a synergy in terms of what they're delivering, whether it's a service or whether it's manufacturing or whatever, uh, will be able to see that there's a a good outcome from knowing the sector better, linking with people, not just geographically locally, but those in this country who may not have been on the radar in terms of what they produced for the supply chain. And, of course, um, ensuring, because there's quite a lot of fraud going on as we speak with um, people getting into cyber attacks, that they'll also take account of going into the the cybersecurity side effectively as well. The more we are online, the more people who are working from home the more vulnerable those businesses and their supply chain become. And that's something to think about as well. How important is strong leadership at the moment? Well, I actually think that it's brought to the fore leadership in a whole range of areas from obviously government itself. And there's been ups and downs with the Prime Minister's uh, severe illness. But all the way through the public and private sector, people have, to use the jargon, stepped up. And they've shown uh, local, regional, national level the kind of leadership that Britain historically was very good at. Regrettably, we've not seen seen the same on the international scene for Mm. all kinds of reasons. Uh, But maybe we will in future. So I think out of this will come experience of people who have seen an opportunity to do good as well as seen an opportunity to provide a good uh, service or goods, uh, including, for instance, shortages uh, for the health and social care uh, system, uh, the food chain and the like. Uh, But also, I think, in terms of seeing the, the synergy between the private and the voluntary sector and using people's commitment to each other in a very positive way. I'm not sentimental about this. Things will revert. Mm -hmm. But actually, I think there is a a kind of moment of moral judgment of people feeling that they've got a role to play outside the immediate survival that they're engaged in. And if we can hang on to a little bit of that social responsibility, that will be a very positive outcome. Absolutely. Absolutely. Now, what's your broad view of how the government is responding to this? Are you broadly supportive of their measures? Well, it may surprise people to hear that that I have been very supportive. Of course, there's been legitimate criticisms about the speed of response on protective equipment and on issues relating to testing. But my own view is very similar to the challenge that was made to the Prime Minister of Italy when people said, why didn't you close Italy down faster? And he said a fortnight before we did it, 
I would have been considered to be a madman and nobody would have agreed to do it mm. if I'd tried to move too quickly. And I, I think that's something that we need to reflect on here in the UK. We, we may have seen the signals elsewhere uh, across the world and taken them more seriously at the time. Hindsight is a wonderful thing. But as someone who's uh, had his life in uh, the opposite uh, political party to the, the present government, I think that with some hiccups and mistakes, they've not done a bad job in what has been incredibly difficult circumstances. And you're absolutely right. In a, in a liberal uh, democracy that we live in, it's, it's very difficult for people to swallow orders given to them from government. Um, well, the, the UK and, um, and the US, and to some extent to the Scandinavian countries, have a very different interest, uh, history and, and therefore interest in maintaining the freedom to decide and the persuasion and mm. consent that's required. Uh, those countries that have experienced one way or another totalitarianism over the last century have a slightly different way of coming at this. Mm. I don't want to exaggerate it, but I think that that's why getting the balance right of getting people to go along with what you want them to do in their interests as well as the nation as a whole is a sensible proportional balance. And I think we now need to adjust to the coming out of the crisis gradually, uh, readjusting to recovery uh, in the same way. Now, something you've mentioned recently on this balance is uh, the police overreach and the enforcement of the COVID-19 uh, structures that have been put in place. What have they done right, and where have they gone too far? Well, I think that they were interpreting what was not necessarily as clear yeah. advice as it might have been for all kinds of reasons, because people were feeling their way. I think what's come out of it has been uh, a demonstration by local police services in some parts of the country that they could get people to do what was needed without the heavy hand of drones overhead mm. or people being told that they you know, shouldn't be walking in the street because this was all about self-isolation, not incarceration. It was about getting people not to pass the infection on to each other and therefore to provide distance rather than to make our lives a misery. Those police services that adopted that policing by consent and chipping people along did really well. Those who went over the top, I think, soon got a very substantial pushback. And one of the strengths of our democracy is that you could have that debate. People could say, I'm terribly sorry, we, we think the police force in our area has gone over the top. And that in itself is a constraint and uh, a readjustment. That, that's another strength of um, living in a country where you can have opinions and express them without actually being thought to be a fool. Now, of course, uh, the government has faced criticism uh, that they were slow to react, uh, and Boris Johnson wasn't present at the early COVID-19 COBRA meetings. Now, uh, Number 10 has claimed that this is normal practice. Uh, the health secretary often chairs COBRA meetings uh, related to health. Uh, does this tally with your experience as a secretary of state, or would you have expected the PM uh, to be more hands-on during the initial stages? I think different prime ministers do have a very different style. And Boris's style, which I think will now be considerably adjusted, was very swashbuckling. In some senses, delegating is a good thing, uh, as every leader of every business or public service knows. Those who try to pull too much into themselves end up with a massive bottleneck, uh, great uh, failure of trust and the inability of people to show what they're worth and to, to demonstrate their capability. So I, I, I'd be very wary of jumping in and saying he was wrong to delegate the essential COBRA meetings. What I was surprised about was that he didn't um, chair the first couple because mm -hmm. my experience with Tony Blair for the eight years I was in cabinet was that Tony was a great delegator, but he would get a grip to begin with, watch what the difficulties were, and then give people direction and confidence to be able to get on with it. So looking back, I think Boris himself probably thinks, God, I wish I'd spotted the signals from elsewhere in the world more rapidly, and I'd just been there. However, this also 
raises another issue. All of us in positions of leadership need good teams around us. Mm -hmm. I think after this is over, he will be assessing those who really did step up and those who demonstrated their inadequacy. I think we'll probably end up in a year's time with a much stronger cabinet than we have today. Well, absolutely. And of course, uh, we've seen a, a significant uh, drop in the visibility of uh, certain special advisors like Dominic Cummings uh, during this uh, entire period. So it'd be interesting to see how that pans out. Um, well, yeah. it's certainly readjusted the role of those behind the scenes with those who should be taking the decisions, having received advice. Obviously, there's been a complete transformation in the profile of experts, if I might use that term, who'd previously been denigrated. Mm -hmm. Scientists, medics, people with behavioral science uh, understanding. My only criticism was, were we getting wide enough advice? Were we narrowing it too much to a couple of key centers in London? But that's because I've always been adverse to everything being London-centric. I think there's great expertise, wisdom, experience out in the sticks, and uh, we should use it. Uh, rightly so. Um, now, was part pandemic planning part of your time as a minister, particularly perhaps uh, when you were Home Secretary? Well, it was, but it was on the back of risk arising out of counter-terrorism measures. Right. Uh, I was the Home Secretary for three months when the attack took place in September 2001 on the World Trade Center and beyond. We did an enormous amount of uh, scenario planning, both desktop and, and real. On the back of that, it was very heavily orientated to future developing terrorism risk. I certainly got involved with talking about pandemics. I remember being at a seminar in Edinburgh where the university there had done a lot of work itself on the issue of pandemics. And of course, we, we saw SARS and other things emerging, I, I think it would. people criticised the government for not picking up the report from 2015, five years ago. I think that what happens is human nature kicks in. You deal with what you're immediately faced with. Mm. You, you, can, you can sponsor reports. And this is true of business planning, of course, as well, and scenario planning for what business continuity will look like, recovery plans for business, what will happen if um, there's a cyber attack, what happens if there's an energy shutdown, sh um, these kind of things you, you can look at. But you're immediately turning your eyes to what's in front of you. And had we picked up a bit more on the danger from Ebola and SARS and what have you in the past, then we might have said, what if something hits us in the developed nations? that we don't have a vaccine for, mm -hmm. that we can't immediately whisk up uh, protective materials or equipment or, for that matter, medicines that help with recovery, all of which we now see are a danger. I think this will make an enormous difference to the planning for the, for the years ahead. I hope it will be widened so that we don't just look at what's happened. But very rarely do you see something exactly repeat itself some of the circumstances will be, but others won't. So that's why I've put emphasis in what I talk about on looking at the other virus, the cyber attack uh, scenario, mm -hmm. which could be just as dangerous in a, uh, a world of just-in-time provision. One of the miracles of uh, the modern developed world, except for the very poor, has been the distribution of food. A lot of it on computerized, uh, technologically advanced systems, if that were to come down, we'd be in real trouble. So I think we need to think those sort of scenarios as well. So have a full plan across uh, both sectors, uh, biological warfare, pandemics, and uh, cyber warfare. Yes, and to do so on different levels, I think again, thinking of thinking global but acting local, we mm. need a lot more to think about what would happen if something took shape that actually broke down those national and global chains and how we would cope. And without, uh, obviously, we've got enough fear and 
anxiety to last a lifetime without creating even more anxiety. We can think about those things for the future in a more rational way, I think. Now, aside from the physical uh, threat of the virus, one of the things that people are vastly worried about is the effect on uh, the economy, not just national economy, but also the world economy. Um, now, it has been said by certain parties, um, and uh, I'd like to garner your uh, thoughts on this. Is there a danger of the effects of the lockdown being even worse than those of the virus? Were it be to prolonged, I fear that that balance would tip the other way. It is about proportionality. It is about balance. It's the wisdom of Solomon, really, to, to get the moment right when you start to move and then to move quickly. There's no doubt whatsoever that we are stocking up not just on the economic and employment front, which will be devastating enough, but on the health and social well-being front, enormous challenges. And they will need careful handling because there's a lot of people whose lives, for a variety of reasons, are at risk in the future on a scale that we've been dealing with over the, the immediate handling of the pandemic concentrating really hard on those affected by COVID-19, those sadly who have died or been seriously incapacitated, that will roll over into the economic, the social, the mental health and cultural well-being of the nation. And that will need all of us to pull together as well. Absolutely. Now, do you believe the government's doing enough for business? I think that the speed of reaction once the scale of the pandemic was clear was very good. I've praised Ricky Sunak for his action. Uh, remember, a chancellor who had only just come into office was planning to deliver the budget in the middle of March and has had three, at least three equivalent budgets since. I think he's handled it very well, understandably worried now about what we're doing to our economy. The level of borrowing is sustainable because of low interest rates, but it reaches a point, of course, where it tips over so that you can't then do the kind of structural investment requirements that the government were laying out before and in the March budget. And those will have their consequences as well as a planned payback over many years. I think we've learned something over the last few months, we, we needed to take immediate action. We don't want another round of austerity equivalent from 2010 through to 2019. I don't think the nation, on the back of what's happened and the challenges we have, could take that. And therefore, we need a different plan, economic plan, over a much longer period, just as we did from the Second World War all the way through to 2002, when the final American loans were paid off. Now, of course, uh, one thing that's on everyone's lips, um, how much longer do you believe uh, that the lockdown can go on for? I believe that we need to be substantially back in action as an economy in June. This obviously is led in terms of places where people would meet in large numbers, having to uh, adjust to the fact that it will be longer for them. And sadly, that will involve business closures. It's why the Chancellor extended the furlough scheme to the end of June. Mm -hmm. But unless we, we get things moving in June, I think we'll run into the summer where all kinds of services and industries will have a chain reaction effect and what happens with one will then have a major impact on another and then you get the skittle effect where things get knocked down that you hadn't perceived were going to be affected so i very much if i were in government and i always think of things in that context what would i do if i were in government i would be on the side from the second week in May, on the side of the Hawks, in terms of saying we've got to start moving and we've got to do so with the collaboration and cooperation of the public who have got the message, who did behave, who responded magnificently. Let's try and get back, perhaps 
you know, doing things differently for a time, but substantially getting back to business as usual. Unless we do that, then those areas that can't and wouldn't expect to be back in action immediately get pushed further into the middle of the year and the autumn, and then they become unsustainable. Now, of course, um, one of the other major developments we've had recently are the changes in the uh, the Labour Party. So if we could just uh, speak on the Labour Party for uh, a while. Um, this might sound like uh, an obvious question, but uh, how does uh, Secure uh, differ from Mr Corbyn? Well, I'm biased because I believe the Labour Party um, has come out of four and a half years of a black hole of a nightmare mm. uh, where it neither represented a, uh, a uh, credible opposition nor uh, an electable government and the combination was to let those who supported the Labour Party and needed some of its policies uh, let them down very badly. Sir Keir Starmer both is a highly intelligent uh, professional lawyer who as Director of Public Prosecutions led the service well uh, had to take difficult decisions at a time of austerity, understands the world beyond Labour members, but has been able to do business with those who originally supported Jeremy Corbyn mm -hmm. and was able to command support from them. His creation of a balanced shadow ministerial team has been very encouraging. Um, I supported Lisa Nandy, who he's made Shadow Foreign Secretary, because I thought she understood the north of England and uh, the, uh, the disaffected uh, Labour, former Labour voters. But I believe that Sakir has taken on board those who have something really sensible to offer. And I believe he will be both a, a great leader of the opposition more importantly, he will then present himself as a credible alternative prime minister. And all governments need an alternative government at their shoulder. Mm. Uh, it was true of us from 97, and it took the Conservatives some time to recover and to get to that position, but they did, and the Labour Party will, and that's crucial for our democracy. All of us need to understand and appreciate that a living, breathing functioning democracy requires uh, a credible, confident, and uh, in many ways uh, supportable opposition, as well as a government that we clearly want to do well, because none of us want, as we didn't with the COVID crisis, none of us want the government to fail. We want to see our economy recover. We want our social well-being to be taken into account. We want to overcome deep-seated inequality and poverty, and we want to do it with enterprise and entrepreneurship and business playing their role, and that is about leadership nationally, locally, in the private and the public sector, people with ideas, with confidence, with the ability to pull teams around them, above all, to have some idea of what it is they want to achieve and a very good idea as to how to achieve it. Now, of course, one of the biggest problems Secure is facing will be tackling the party's anti-Semitism problem. Uh, there has been a recent internal report that has been quite damning. Uh, what's your response uh, to that report, and what does Secure need to do in response? Well, there are two reports. One which is being produced by the Quality and Human Rights Commission, uh, which he will, and has already indicated, will implement in full. The second was a leaked report put together by the supporters of Jeremy Corbyn, 800 pages of private uh, interchanges on social media, which he has, Sakir uh, Starmer, set up an investigation to identify uh, who did it, who leaked it, what the content was, does it have any salience and lessons for us, and where necessary action will be taken. So I hope that as he moved very quickly to reassure the Jewish community, so he will be able to take the necessary steps to back up that reassurance with the kind of actions that says that this was a blight on a historic great political party 
that all of, all of us were ashamed of. We've been able to put that behind us and to move on to facing the future with confidence. What's the one king, uh, key thing that Secure needs to do to restore Labour as an election-winning party? I think Secure Starmer's major challenge is to convince sceptical voters that Labour has not only reverted to a party that they can support because they can see it acting, developing, presenting as a credible alternative government, mm -hmm. but also that the lessons have been learned from the fiasco from 2015 onwards. In other words, there have to be very clear signals of substantial change, not just the right words, not just reassurance that we're not uh, going back to some of the crazier uh, policies, but actually that we've understood why the electorate rejected those policies so substantially in December 2019. If people get that message, they'll understand that the Labour Party has changed, as it did in the 1980s and early 90s, to become the electable government with the greatest majority in historic majority, even greater than 1945, which I was privileged to be able to take advantage of in 1997 when I joined the cabinet. Now, I know what your answer is going to be to this question, but uh, indulge me. Um, do you think Secure has what it takes to be PM? Yes, I do. I think he has the background, he has the experience, he has the professionalism, he has the forensic uh, mindset, and he has the confidence to have put a team around him which will ensure that it will work. And those elements are true of all leaders. Ideas, the ability to build a team, to have confidence in that team, uh, and to be able to demonstrate leadership in practice, sometimes at the most difficult times. And, you know, the Leaders' Council, those sharing their thoughts with uh, um, the kind of thing that we're doing now uh, with uh, a podcast, but also joining us in linking up in that network of people who can support and help each other and learn from mm -hmm. each other, that is what needs to be done in politics as it needs to be done in business. Thank well, you very much indeed, Matthew. Well, really thank you for coming on the, uh, the program. It's been a, an absolute pleasure, and I look forward to speaking with you again. Thank you very much, and good luck to all those listening in what has been a nightmare scenario. Good luck for the future. Have courage have confidence, and yes, listen to those who know more about business than I ever will. Thank you, Lord Blunkett. Thank you.